there's a code of silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a code of silence and it can't go on. Thousands of them, they get grants from the same foundations 
that also give grants to the United Nations, so you know who the United Nations works for. In fact, the United Nations was the brainchild, really, of the guys that put together the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And from that, they have different think tanks. Each one is specialized in a certain area, and the one to do with where we're going, how to control the public, is really the, the Club of Rome. They came up with the great, fantastic ideas for the future and how to get the public to believe something. Then they give these ideas to, to the fixers, those that can put it into uh, agendas that will work, be propagated to the public through the media and train the children at school. And sure enough, they'll all go along here. The children will grow up thinking uh, that everything they're told by the experts is true. It's a, a religion. You see, science is a religion, and it's been used in exactly the same way as religions controlled the people of the past. The person in the Middle Ages was inside a kind of box, a mental box, because everything that happened in his or her life had to be bounced off that box walls. The walls were the, the Holy Bible, and what the priests were telling them. And that's all they knew. That's all they knew. And they didn't even question it. They thought that that's true. It must be true. And it's no different today with the scientists, with their, their global warming and, and CO2 emissions. And now they're going back 20 million years, supposedly, to, to check on what it was like back then, like they know, right? And, uh, and give us all this fake data and statistics and so on, so that we'll be terrified and to carry on the way we are and allow ourselves to go into the more managed society. And that's what it boils down to, is a managed society. A society where you will not have a, a single right on what you do. It'll all be made for you. All the decisions will be made for you, including what you work at. And in fact, including if you're even born, because they don't want uh, you, if there's no place for you to serve the new world system. And that was basically put into the foundations the tenets of the Royal Institute for International Affairs and its American uh, organization called the Council on Foreign Relations, the world's be a world of service, service to the world state. And it takes years to set all this up. It takes years to propagandize it into our heads, to download it into us until we believe it all. And now they're on a roll. So believe you me, it'll be incessant now, green, 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 uh, until... We also come in the go moldy. Now, on the BBC, the BBC News, on a Tuesday, uh, Thursday, the fifteenth of November, uh, the Foreign Secretary for the, for uh, Britain is now pushing for an expansion of the the Union. Now, you understand how you perceive things. It's all to do with terminology, the way terminology is used. At one time, if you wanted to build an empire, you were an empire builder. And again, don't forget the roots of the Cecil Rhodes Foundation and the Lord Milner Society that combined to, to, to form the Royal Institute for International Affairs, which serves the old, old aristocracy of Britain. That's who runs it at the top. They have for, run Britain for a thousand years. And uh, this is what they're pushing for now is an expansion of the European Union. And it says here, Thursday, 15th November 2007, the EU should expand beyond Europe. Foreign Secretary David Millibrand has suggested that the European Union should work towards including Russia, Middle Eastern, and North African countries. Remember George Orwell's 1984, written in 1948. Remember that Blair, who was, really, who was who 
suited to them was, was Orwell, Blair said that he was raised and trained by this elite for their organization, and he turned against it. He knew there'd be eventually ongoing wars between three super states, three trading blocs, East Asia, West Asia, and so on. And, uh, and here we are moving all, along this way with the United Whole of the Americas too. But getting back to Milband, he says, enlargement was our most useful tool for extending stability. In his first major speech on the UK's relationship with Europe, he said the EU would not become a superpower but should be a role model for the world. They are role model for the world. It could be a model power of regional cooperation dedicated to free trade, all the way back to Francis Bacon, John D. actually in Francis Bacon, free trade, a British system, environment and tackling extremism. He said the EU must keep our promises to Turkey, adding if we fail, it will signal a deep and dangerous divide between East and West. Beyond that, we must keep the door open, retaining incentive for change and the prospect of membership provides. Mr. Milbrand made his address at the College of Europe in Belgium, where Baroness Thatcher, Baroness, that's son of oneness, Baroness Thatcher, Maggie Thatcher, the Iron Lady, delivered her famous warning against some sort of identikit European personality almost exactly two decades ago in September 1988. Here, U.S. is the only superpower. Mr. Miliband said that that speech had been haunted by demons. The speech that Thatcher gave a European superstate bringing in socialism by the back door. But he said the truth is that the EU has enlarged, remodeled, and opened up. It is not, and is not going to become a superstate. But neither is it destined to become a superpower. He's telling the truth there in a sense, because the three superstates will, will be under the United Nations. Uh, and that was written about by H.G. Wells back in the 1920s. Instead, he said the EU had the chance to be a model power which could develop shared values between countries. So it's going to create new values. As a club that countries want to join, it can persuade countries to play by the rules, who makes the rules, eh? and set global standards in the way it dispenses its responsibilities around the world. It can be a role model that others follow. And he goes on to the security aspect. Mr. Milband said new threats like protectionism, religious extremism, energy insecurity, rogue and feeling states, and climate change provided a new reason d'être for the EU. He outlined four principles for the next generation of Europe. And you should listen to this carefully because, you see, this is going to be the future. This is the future. It's all planned already. He outlined four principles for the next generation of Europe for it remained open to trade, ideas, and investment to develop shared institutions. Shared institutions mean standardization of your systems to overcome religious and cultural divides. Remember, too, they wanted to eradicate all basic religions and bring a new secular-type system in, where science will be the new religion, actually. To prevent conflict by championing international law, and human rights in and outside Europe, and they become a low-carbon power. He said a successful EU must be prepared to deploy soft and hard power. That's, that's like basically blackmail, um, the threat of force. Hard power is force to promote democracy and tackle conflict beyond its borders. So they're going to go to war. He said that goal must be a multilateral free trade zone around our periphery. 
This would be a version of the European Free Trade Association that could gradually bring the countries of the Maghreb, Middle East and Eastern Europe Secretary in line with the single market, not as an alternative to membership, but potentially as a step towards it. And the EU should extend the military support to places like Darfur, he argued, to help solve problems of unwanted migration. So this is the future. These guys do tell you the future. It will be so because all these characters are members of the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And I keep telling people to look in to uh, the, the website for the Royal Institute for International Affairs. You'll see that the specialized groups set up, well-financed, very prominent members set up to tackle every area of society and life in general, including your food supply. We'll be back after these following messages. Thanks for doing your thing, man, and uh, just keep it up. Uh, thank you. Thank you for talking to me. That's a pleasure. 
Um, yeah, and, and so yeah, India is a is a a real mystery, and most of the religions you'll find uh, really derived from India. They have their own version of Moses long before it was written down anywhere else. Uh, they have their their various messiahs, and, and everything is hidden behind very clever allegories, though, and their gods. Their, their gods are all allegories for other things. It's very interesting when you understand them. That that's when you, you really wake up and you, and you understand the depth of understanding that whoever put this stuff together, and all the teams, no doubt, that put this stuff together, the religions, um, they had incredible information on which to draw to create new religions even even thousands of years ago. So the world is far over the, the older than we're told, and they're always digging up new cities, even in uh, up, up in the, the northeast or northwest of India. They're still digging up new cities, and we're not told too much about them. They're thousands and thousands of years old. And they had astronomy. They're basically astronomical observation posts as well. Thousands of years ago, you could get tours and go around them today. Uh, the, the, these characters were much the same as the Egyptians, and I'm sure there's even a connection between India. If you look at uh, the north of India, up at Mustang area, that's between Tibet and India, you, you'll find a lot of the, the, the people there, I think, were eventually exported to, to some parts of Latin America with some of that culture because the temples there, the headdresses, etc., are very similar to, to the Incas and the facial features and so on. But now we also have uh, Garen on the line. Are you there, Garen? Yes, hello, Alan. Hello. <clears throat> yeah, I have a question. Um, the I, I like the your logo though on your uh, your website of you kicking the uh, the uh, capstone off of the pyramid. That's cool. That's right. Yeah. But um, my question is, um, uh, I live in Rhode Island. Uh, I don't know if it's in the United States. I don't know. It's in the northeast part of the United States, and I've lost uh, two jobs from them going overseas to closing and like literally i mean i'm not even exaggerating but like every place around here amgen and uh, g-tech uh, they're they're all either closing or, or laying off i mean do you do you have any suggestions about where, where uh, what a good uh field or to look into maybe or, uh things like that or um what fields might be good in the future or what to do or, or maybe even become self-sufficient? Do you have any ideas or suggestions about that? Well, there's no doubt about it. The, the, the fields that will become important, already have become important, are the green fields, as they call it. It's all with environment and so on. And because the world we're coming into is to be a control system run by experts and institutions and education and authorities, like health authorities, etc. These are the areas that are on the rise and industries on the way out totally. Uh, everything here is a service economy because China was built up to take over the industrial side of things. And um, those who, uh, the, the, I put it this way, the better sharks are already in uh, the high service industries, especially to do with environmental products, etc. That's where it's all going to be. And the only alternative really is to, to get out of the country because We'll go through hell before we'll see a glimpse of any heaven. So, so you're saying get out of the country? If you can. Yeah. To where? Can, can I hold over? Hold over and back after these messages.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi, Alan Watt back with Cutting Through the Matrix. And we still have a caller on the line. Are you, are you still there? Yes. Yes. Yeah, you're talking about uh, what field to go into, and that's the only. These are the only fields that are up and coming. Um, really, are all these sort of green industries, all these things which are going to regulate the lives and dominate the lives of the general public. Uh, that's that's a war. See, it's a war, and they've already said that at the Club of Rome when they wrote the book, the first global revolution. Right in that book, they talked about the future that they're going to bring in. And don't forget, they're only a part of the R, Royal Institute for International Affairs, the RIIA. And they said that they, they hit upon the idea back in the 70s of using the environment to control the public. And that's why they've launched this blitz now. They'll continue and continue until we're so sick of hearing it uh, and on our, uh, controlling our ways of, our way of life. Um, in a post-industrial society, but even post-technological, as far as the West goes, it's all, even though all technology is really based in China, most of it, um, what are you going to do with all the people? So you must create new industries, and that's going to be all to do with green environment um, and, and so on. So um, unless you're, you've got a gift in that area and you're, you're a good shark, uh, you know, you won't succeed. Yeah, well... I'm not a good shark, so that's what uh, I was, you know, kind of getting at, like something, I mean, maybe maybe become more self-sufficient and, and learn how to, you know, yeah. in the future, the way things will be, maybe to, you know, become more self-sufficient and, and uh, learn how to, you know, bartering and thing, learn how to live off a system uh, yeah, like as, as much as you can. You see, even that, I mean, they've already said, uh, and they're already doing it, they're starting to encroach upon all the rights of even people in the rural areas. So you have to do your homework if you want to move out to a more rural area and and go into all the, the council offices, find out what their plans are for that area during the next 20 or years or 30 years. And, um, and before you buy anything, or even moving into a small a plot to, to start your, growing your own stuff and so on. You have to really check into what their plans are, look into the local council types, all the associations in that area, find out what their mandates are, their agendas, because you'd be surprised it's infiltrated every aspect of living. It's a totally, we're already really in a, a totally controlled society. Yes, uh, yeah, it's becoming more and more apparent. Now, you had uh, said something before the break about leaving the country, leaving the U.S., which mm -hmm. uh, areas or nations, places uh, would be good? I still think that um, you, you can go into, uh, say, if you, if, if you can handle it, if it depends if it's just yourself or if there's a family there, but you can go into places like Sri Lanka and so on, into the highland areas, they're unaffected by tsunamis and so on, and um, it's one of the coastal areas you worry about, but they've already survived tsunamis in the highlands, so there's no problem there. It's been tested, in other words, and, and therefore it's safe now. Um, and there's also um, even places in Europe, even parts of Spain even, you know, you can still go to as well. So there are places you think that you'd go to to um, more, more or less... Uh 
away from the uh, coming... Yeah, the, the, there are some places that will be taken down later. At the moment, it's the first world countries that must get the, the heavy hand as we get retrained into this new dominant system. Mm-hmm. And so we're getting the worst of it right now and all the laws, regulations. You see it everywhere. It's just force, basically. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, but, uh, the other countries that, that aren't geared up towards that, for, they're not geared towards high military um, visibility or high police visibility. They don't have all these associations or right down to your, to your tenant associations, the guys that tell you how to live and what color to paint your house. They don't have any of that system yet, so they'll be the last ones to, to get it. And you might just squeak through your life before they eventually get round to them. How about um, are there any places in South America like that? Uh, there are places. Um, and once again, uh, the problem with South America is that the U.S. has been in there with special forces for 50 years, and so you're never, you're never sure when they're going to stir something up. Uh-huh. Uh, and because the U.S. is very good at that, they've, they've yeah. kept them in turmoil uh, for 50 years, unless they have the authorized dictator. And uh, so you could be living quite peaceably and setting up a place, and, and then uh, by a, a judgment made in the Pentagon, you're an upheaval. Yeah. Mm, yeah, I see. I see what you mean. Uh, how do you feel about where you live in uh, Canada? Is, uh, do you plan on staying there? Well, Canada itself is uh, going the same way. I mean, uh, Canada is a, a member of the British Commonwealth. They're taking it a bit slower because uh, we never really had an idea of what really freedom was. You live in a, this strange monarchy-democracy. You know that there's an elite to run the, the world. You know that growing up. And you take that for granted. Um, and Canada's not geared up for the heavy-style military-type uh, system that the U.S. Uh, is geared for. I mean, you can police the whole of the U.S. just with your military alone. And, and then they will do it one day because that was the big argument was back at the Constitution days, uh, should they have a standing army or not? Because the history of standing armies is that the standing army is always used eventually upon its own people. Yes, yeah, yeah, I know. Always, was, always down through history. Yeah, yeah that's why they, uh, the founders of, of America were, most of them uh, in general, were against having a standard army. They believed in having a militia and then raising an army in in a time of war because they didn't want a permanent standing army because they knew the oppression that a a permanent standing army could bring against the citizens of uh, that nation, that country. That's right. This whole thing, too, is they tried to create a system, as far as we can tell, at least with the first constitution, uh, they, they tried to get a system where it was not centralized. They knew that centralization of power, the very Marxist policy, the centralization of power would give ultimate authority to a handful of people, even with an army there to their command. That's a lot of power to give a handful of people. Mm, yeah, it certainly is. And, and as you know, too, um, really the Civil War in the U.S. was the big battle for centralization of power. That was his main objective. And Karl Marx actually um, telegraphed Lincoln. It's in the congressional records congratulating him on, on keeping that because it was a tenet of Marxist philosophy to centralize power uh, and actually encourage nationalism before you bring in internationalism. You must get nationalism, which centralizes power. Then, you, then it goes international through treaties. Yeah, that was, again, the 
It's absolutely true that that was the main element of the Civil War, states' rights versus uh, uh, centralized federal government. Yeah. So, and that's what's been happening. It's been a, you know, you yeah. can never give up. Uh, most people folk after a war are so war weary they want to go back to, to what they think is a normal way of life. And it's when you're starting to breathe again and trying to have some fun in life that these characters are working behind the scenes insidiously, backed by heavy money, unlimited wealth, and, and by doing so, you don't notice how they sneak up on you. And they do it intergenerationally until you wake up one day and you can't move without institutions or police authorities or, or some kind of authority breathing down your neck. Mm, that, yeah, that's the way it's largely already become. There's yes. not much you can do without uh, gov- government interference, interfering yep. in your business. Mm-hmm. So, so really, I mean, if you want to get a place to, to live, that you can at least grow your food and so on, really check out the area in detail and go into all the records, see what they have planned, because it's so important. You don't want to, to get a place and then find out they've got uh, big environmental plans for that area. Um, and then you start losing everything once again as they come in to fine you for this and fine you for that or fine you for polluting or a substandard this or that or the other. <laughs> mm, yeah. Yeah, See, all, all building regulations now come from the United Nations, and they have for about 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. That's every part of building codes, of all the building codes, comes from the United Nations worldwide. Yeah, and then, then they're starting, you know, with the property and the, the water and, and all that water supply and all that, yeah. which comes from the UN, and now those policies are filtering in to, you know, becoming yeah. policy in America. Yes. And, and now they're even going further now where they're going to claim that you're in a watershed. Well, the whole planet technically is a watershed. Anywhere it's ever rained in history is now a watershed. And they can come in and fine you daily for a dented gutter, hmm. a dung pipe. Yeah. I know. So that, that's how, and it, it sounds ridiculous because that's why it's ridiculous. It's because it's nothing to do with what they're saying. It's to get you off the land. That's the whole yep. purpose of it. Yep, it is. <laughs> that's, that is the real purpose of it. And then, too, you have the, the incredible housing market. At uh, one time, the, the, the person who owned the house was the person who decided on the price. Now you have the, the big sharks, too, the bigger, the better psychopaths who come in and, and do, deal with the high real estate. They, they gouge everybody. They put the prices way up so they get a bigger cut, and then everyone suffers. Oh, yeah. So it isn't just the, the, the organizations. It's also the types of personalities that we have in a system Mm. that, that uh, lives off other people like this. Mm, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the parasitic types. And, uh, yes. Yeah. And, and they are parasitic, and, and they live very well. And it's good psychopaths can always rationalize what they do, and they, they, don't, um, they don't need sleeping pills or they don't need tranquilizers. They, they can rationalize anything they do to other people. And, uh, and that's the problem. We have enough of them in society, not just at the top. It's down through society. And we have a, a basically that they've given us a psychopathic culture to follow. Mm, I know it. it it's <laughs> a person with uh, uh, a lot of decency in them, natural decency, um, is not going to thrive in a sea infested by sharks. Yeah, that's uh, well. That's where I find myself, and I, in, you know, knowing and, and studying and learning about this stuff for years and. Being the type of person that I am, you know, I'm 
I'm the little minnow, I guess, or something, swimming around with all the sharks around me. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to figure out, how I'm going to survive, you know, yeah. as these sharks, there's more and more sharks around me, uh, and, uh, you know, what to do. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't belong to these organizations, you don't belong to the to the various brotherhoods that, that run cities and governments and all the rest of it. And they do. that. They do. You know, they, there's no doubt about it. They do. Um if you drive in any town in Canada or the States, look at the first big billboard you see, and it's all the associations, the Masonic associations and and Rotary Clubs and, and um, Eastern Stars and so on. Even going into Sudbury, where, near where I live there, there's about, I don't know, about 30 of them on the, on the board, and that's telling you who owns and runs that town right there. Yeah. And anybody who's anybody is on that, you know, is, is a member of one of these organizations. They're on the boards of the school, of the council, of the ratepayers, of everything you can imagine, uh, they run it all. That's their town, and that's their that's their that's their banner right there. Yeah, and I've seen uh, even on TV when they're talking about a, a local municipality, and uh, they'll say, uh, you know, the the Situate Corporation, referring to the town of Situate, you know, and they actually call it the Situate Corporation, mm-hmm. and I've I've seen this. Where, they, where, where towns and cities are actually officially uh, titled, you know, the yeah. Situate Corporation, you know, this type of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it's getting yeah. real bad. It's bad. And as I say, wherever you do look, you've got to go into the area, you go into the planning and development uh, uh, departments and see what they have scheduled. And um, and also look at, to see who is moving in, see if there's big building companies moving in. If that's the case, forget it, because yeah. the prices are going to be jacked out sky high. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, all right. So, uh, thanks a lot, Alan. Thanks for calling. Yep. And we also have um, is it big toe in Florida. Is it big toe? Hello. Hello, Alan. Hello. Uh, yeah, I had uh, one question for you tonight, maybe a statement or two. You can enlighten the other people who are listening. Uh, my question is, well, I've been listening to you for about a year now, and you're very informative. And my question is, I was reading the paper on Friday, and in a very small print, very in the very corner of the paper, that they had mentioned that they have getting or they're storing now the seeds in the seed bank in the glacial mountain over in Norway or Finland? That's, that's one of them, yeah. Okay. Now, can you, if you have any knowledge of this, uh, they're not going to be stocking that with their hybrid or modified seeds, are they? No. They're, they're probably going to try and use the old seed where that will bear the fruit, and that seed from that fruit is fertile, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they, have, they have quite a few across the world, in fact, um, you, you'll find that I think it's uh, one of the big foundations for, for wildlife and so on. I think it's the World Wildlife Foundation. They have three arcs across the planet. They call them arcs. Mm-hmm. These are huge facilities. One is in Louisiana, and a documentary was made on it for public broadcasting television. And uh, it's run by professors who also teach at local universities. But in this arc, they have cryogenics, uh, huge facilities with every, every gene of every species in them, animal and, and everything else, and they say they could reseed the earth, in other words, regenerate the earth uh, anytime they want to, and if one goes down, there's always another two left worldwide. So they have these things all over the world, 
And I wouldn't be surprised if eventually the space station that they put up there, uh, or when it's completed, will be another arc where they have a lot of this uh, genetic material. All that stuff in Star Trek was, wasn't coming out of the imagination of Roddenberry or the writers. Roddenberry was a member of NASA, and uh, he was told to write stories around up-and-coming things in the future that they planned to do. And uh, the Genesis project that they had in the Star Trek series uh, is something that they talked about. They can reseed the world even if they destroy it. They think they're so um, godlike now they can uh, recreate anything from you and make new types too if they want to. Okay, I see. Cause, uh, I've not been informed or ever seen anything on those other facilities that you've mentioned. And uh, like I say, it was in real small print. They really don't want you to see what's going on, but they're telling you. But yeah. it's yeah, they it's all legalities. Legally, they tell you everything that they do. They just don't make a big deal out of the things that they don't want you to dwell upon. Right, I see. Uh, my one statement was: uh, people are being scared, as you say into this global warming, go green, and you have these idiots out there like Al Gore and, you know, his cronies. <clears throat> but the Earth, it goes through its phases. Uh, the Earth makes its rotation in 24 hours. One day takes 365 days to go around the sun. Mm -hmm. The sun, or excuse me, the Earth does not follow, let's say, for instance, a zero latitude around it, uh, like the equator, that it may... Uh, wobble or divert 9 to 12 degrees at a time. So therefore, you're going to get periods of global warming, global cooling. And yeah. this has been proven, I'm sure that you know it also. I've got all the books, all the books that were published to do with previous ice ages uh, uh, that they were publishing from the early 1900s right through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. And then suddenly they reversed it and made it global warming was going to be the problem because it used to be taught in school children's books. We went through these things all the time. I'll be back. Hang on the line. I'll be back after four messages. Okay. Next caller. 
Okay. I've got the three lined up here before we, we go out. So I think we have Catherine here. I can't see because my screen's up now. Are you there, Catherine? Catherine? Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, when it switches over, it, it sounds like um, I'm being um, cut off. Anyway, I have a question for you. I know that you're um, very often into translating symbols. And I was on uh, the Internet the other day, and I was looking at British Heraldry. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hello? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, and um, I was looking at uh, the Order of the Garter, and there were two photos presented. One looked like a demonic gargoyle, mm-hmm. and the other one, I believe, is being or has been presented to the Prime Minister following... Uh, Margaret Thatcher, I think it's John Majors. Yeah. And um, anyway, it's it's a stag, and he's holding a key, and the key has two M's that are joined at the top, and at the base of the key there's a circle with an X in it. Then there's sort of a ribbon banner connected from the bottom of the key that goes around the stag, and it's in red, white, and blue, and I'm just wondering if you understand any of the symbology of that. Yeah, this goes all the way back to King John, who started up the Order of the Garter, and there was actually the Black Order and the Red Order to begin with, and uh, the Garter itself uh, used to be a symbol where they had a, uh, they actually had um, uh, the the skin of the penis uh, penetrated for a ring to be put on it, and they did have um, a little chain that went there and round the leg. That was the initial version of it for the for that very high noble knights. And uh, they were tied, you may say they were tied to their job in a sense. Uh, a very long history. It meant that you were now initiated in to eligibility to intermarry with this particular elite which should serve the system so well. That's what it means basically today. And the red, white and blue um, uh, again, these are colors. The, the blue, of course, is the open sky. Therefore, everything's out in the open. That's the blue lodge. That's the, for the guys at the bottom that don't know much. Then you have the red for revolution, constant revolution, culture, etc. And, uh, and um, uh, you have the white, the white for high spirit, because they have spirit and we don't, according to themselves. The X is a lumen man. You're now illumined. And I can hear the music coming up for the end. And here okay. I am, sitting in the dark. And, well, thank uh, you very much. From Hamish and myself in Ontario, Canada, it's good night and may your God or your gods go with you.